Hi, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Paris Jackson, the host of Crosscut Now on KCTS 9, and now your new host for this podcast. For the next few months, I will be bringing you conversations from the Crosscut Ideas Festival, which took place in early May in Seattle. The festival brought together big ideas and bold thinking, prominent thought leaders, esteemed journalists, and politicians, and many dynamic newsmakers to discuss the biggest issues affecting our world today. For this episode, we're digging into one fascinating conversation between Deepak Chopra and PBS NewsHour co-anchor Amna Navas. Chopra shares what inspired him to write his latest book, Living in the Light, Yoga for Self-Realization. His 93rd book, yes, 9-3, and he's already working on his 94th. If you don't know much about Deepak Chopra, he's an alternative medicine advocate, physician, author, philosopher, and longtime yogi, a practice he's been doing for 35 years and does daily at 76 years old. He often talks a lot about metaphysics, the study of consciousness and philosophy. In this conversation, Chopra offers his prescription for the mental health crisis in America and around the globe. He doesn't believe we should look at mental health as a singular issue, but more broadly, that mental health is connected to our physical health. Throughout, he keeps going back to this idea that we as citizens of the world are sleepwalking to our extinction. That said, the big takeaway here is a tangible prescription for hope. One I think is very easy to incorporate to digest in our daily lives. I hope you enjoy this powerful conversation. If you have any feedback, please send it to talks at crosscut.com. Now let's get into it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Crosscut Ideas Festival. I'm Amna Nawaz, co-anchor of the PBS NewsHour, and I'm here today to speak with Deepak Chopra. Deepak Chopra, welcome, and thank you so much. It's an honor to be with you today. Thank you, Amna. Me and my wife watch you every day. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for that. Thank you to both of you for your support as well. Um, I want to ask you about this new book because it is book number 93. It's called Living in the Light. You've co-written it uh, with your yoga teacher, Sarah Plattfinger. And you yourself have shared you've practiced yoga for over 30 years. Who is it you're trying to reach with this particular book? And why this book right now? So I'm not, yes, I've been practicing yoga for 35 years or so. And when I first came to the United States, which is, I think now over 50 years, I was 22, 23, uh, straight off to medical school. I couldn't find a yoga studio in New York City. And now every block, there's a couple, a few. So in 35 years, we've seen a lot of interest in yoga. And yet all the yoga studios, every single one that I know, actually only talks about the physical postures of yoga. So if you look at the original writings on yoga, everybody, every commentary of yoga in my office here, there are at least 25 different commentaries of on yoga by experts and really good uh, scholars. 
but everybody only talks about 5% uh, of the yogic literature and the postures which are very important are one aspect of eight different limbs of yoga so that is Patanjali's yoga, the original author of yoga. And it was in Hindi, it was called Raja Yoga, which translated into English means Royal Yoga. And there are eight limbs and only 5% of the literature, original literature is devoted to the physical aspects of yoga, which are, as I said, very important because the ultimate premise of yoga is that your body is not physical. It's, yeah. it appears physical, but it actually is a modality of awareness, as is everything else that you experience, is a modality of awareness. You experience it through five senses, through the filter of the mind, intellect, ego. So what you're experiencing as the physical world, including your own physical body, is a perceptual and conceptual interpretation of what is happening in consciousness. And once you recognize that, then your body becomes your instrument for expanding your awareness to the point that you get to the most fundamental level of awareness, which answers the question, who am I? What am I? So that question, who am I? What am I? Is answered through practice. And the practice includes the eight limbs of yoga. And when you get to it in the end, you realize you are nothing conceptual or perceptual. You're the source of every concept and perception. And that gives you infinite freedom. And that in the traditional uh, uh, wisdom traditions is called liberation from suffering or enlightenment or whatever word you want to call it, but it's universal. You know, the Sufis talk about it. The Buddhists talk about it, the Gnostic Gospels talk about it. Yoga is just a very, very systemized approach. So those eight limbs, and I'll stop after that. Number one, social intelligence. Number two, emotional intelligence. Number three, body intelligence. Okay, so the number four, breath intelligence. Number five, interoceptive awareness, the ability to see what's happening inside your body. Number six, mindfulness and meditation. Number seven, focused awareness. And then finally, samadhi, which is transcendence. So that's the complete body of yoga. And my book is actually a very short summary. It doesn't really do justice. Oh, your book also includes a very helpful 30-day program, which yeah. I found as someone who is a very irregular practicer of, of yoga, very helpful. But you, um, you, know, you mentioned you've been doing this 35 years. Is, is it still something you practice every single day? Yeah, I do. This is my routine. I wake up, I you know, do my ablutions, and then the first thing I do is yoga, followed by meditation. And usually that happens about 6 o'clock. And then I'm done with all my yogic and meditative practices by about 10. And then I begin my day 11. But I can afford that now because I'm 76 years old. <laughs> do you write every day as well? I do. You I do. do. Are you working on another book? Yes, actually. Uh, uh, <laughs> my, my new book is with a physicist, a quantum physicist, and it's called the quantum body. It's about how your metabolism 
is influenced every second or even faster by the experiences you're having. So right, you know, I, I got this idea a while back, a long time ago, yeah. in 1988, actually, when I was speaking to a patient and I wrongly diagnosed him as having cancer. You know, I was reading somebody else's chart. And as, as soon as I told him he had cancer, I could see his body go into crisis. Right. Um, so his blood pressure went up, his platelets got sticky, and, you know, his heart rate speeded up. And the very, very next second, I told him, you know, that's not your chart. I'm sorry, that's somebody else's chart. And immediately I saw his demeanor change and every biological wow. function change. So actually, we are the metabolism of experience. And it happens at a very fundamental level. And that's what my new book is about, The Quantum right. Body. That would be book number 94. We'll look out for it. Um, oh. I, should, I should mention, we, we are speaking in the midst of, of a real mental health crisis, certainly here in America, but more broadly as well. And a lot of people will point to the pandemic as an accelerant of that. But I know a lot of experts I've talked to have said we are and have been heading down this road for a very long time. So I'm curious how you view this moment when it comes to the mental health of Americans and, and how your philosophy intersects with that. So first of all, Amna, I don't think it's fair to separate mental health from physical health. Mm -hmm. So all our attitude towards mental health right now is above the neck, you know, something that you have to handle here. But actually, a lot of things that we feel are mental issues, their treatment lies below the below the neck as well, you know, in terms of everything we do, uh, in terms of diet and how we handle our microbiome, exercise, breathing, personal relationships, social interactions, um, biological rhythms. So, you know, it's kind of a simplistic thing to separate the two. Now, during the pandemic, what happened is our foundation was doing what is called meta-analysis, which is a computer research on what other people are doing, you know, research-wise. So these days, if you don't have the resources to do your own research, you can go use AI and computers to do what is called meta-analysis to see and summarize everybody else's research. And so what we found was that all the people who were getting sick, including the young ones, old ones, you know, we knew risk factors, heart disease, diabetes, etc., that come with aging. But the younger people who were getting sick, morbidity, and even mortality, all of them, without exception, had stress, anxiety, and depression, and inflammation as foundational factors. So everybody had inflammation, some chronic, some acute. So the young people had what we call inflammatory storms. So bloody, uh, the body was flooded with inflammatory proteins uh, as if it was on fire. The older people had chronic inflammation, but irrespective of every, uh, every incident, the common factor in addition to inflammation was severe anxiety. Mm -hmm and uh, also depression and you know a combination of factors anger hostility guilt shame depletion of energy etc so 
as a result of that, we were able to actually look at a part of the nervous system that is commonly ignored. You know, everybody talks about the brain. Everybody talks about the sympathetic nervous system, which uh, actually helps us deal with fight, flight, stress responses. But there's a part of our autonomic nervous system called the parasympathetic nervous system. And that is now referred to as the rest, renew, rejuvenate, and healing system. And in that system, there's a one particular nerve called the vagus nerve. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, the word vagus is Latin, but related to the English word vagabond. This is the 10th cranial nerve. It influences your eye movements, your facial expressions, the tone of your voice, your heart rate variability, which is the best measure of whether you're stressed or not. Um, the depth of your breathing and the, the, the rate of your breathing, but it also influences the health of your microbiome and what's happening to the 2 million genes in your gut, which are actually the majority of genetic information in your body is not human. You only have 25,000 genes from your parents. You have 2 million genes that are from the soil, the bacteria. And so we focused on mental health through parasympathetic nervous system activation. And that includes yoga, breathing, diet, biological rhythms. But during the course of the pandemic, we also discovered that uh, the second most common cause of death amongst teens is suicide. Mm -hmm. 40 seconds, somewhere in the world, somebody is dying from suicide. So we created through the foundation, uh, we created a new website called neveralone.love. And we deployed an artificial intelligence, emotional chatbot that we called PB, which was the nickname of a recording artist who had died from suicide. She was the sister of an actress who was very active in the mental health movement, Gabriella Wright, British Indian, and uh, European, but nevertheless, we call the chatbot Peewee. And we found that teens were more comfortable talking to Peewee than to a human counselor. More comfortable talking to an AI chatbot than to a real human. Yeah, because they didn't feel judged. And that the the chatbot became very intimately familiar with them. How did you sleep last night? What did you eat? Did your boyfriend or girlfriend return your call? What is the matter, etc. Bottom line, the AI has now intervened in 6,000 suicidal ideations. She's speaking to 20 million, mostly young people at the same time. And I just went to Dubai and had conversations with people there because this is a worldwide pandemic, uh, suicide and mental illness, not only amongst young people, but now in the elderly. You'll be very surprised to know that in India and Pakistan, actually elderly are committing suicide because in those cultures, they don't want to be dependent on their children. And so, you know, they're dying from suicide because Mm -hmm. of social circumstances. So I recently went to the Middle East and said, how can we do this, expand this in Urdu, in Hindi, in Arabic, in Farsi? 
And there's a deep need right now for some kind of intervention that actually works because people go to counselors all the time and most people they keep just going without any, without any benefit except, you know, there's, there's somebody to listen to. Can I ask you about that, the technology part of it? Because it will surprise a lot of folks that you have embraced technology to the extent you have. We talk a lot about the harm it can bring, right? Increased isolation, in particular, the harms of social media and platforms that are meant to be connecting us. But you seem to believe that there's real hope and a real future in achieving that kind of wellness and well-being through technology. Yeah, I just gave you the example of, uh, say, the vagal stimulation. So now I'm working on a project where you can do a 30 second or 10 second video where you would say, hello, I'm Amna Nawaz. How are you? Have a good day. And then we can look at your eye movements, your facial expressions, tone of your voice, body language, gestures connected to what's happening with vagal stimulation. Look at your heart rate, immune system, blood pressure, everything. And within a few seconds say, you're in good health or your aging is accelerated or you have inflammation and so on, which was unthinkable 10 years ago. So technology used correctly, I believe, can enhance the future of well-being, even help us create a more peaceful, just, sustainable, healthier and joyful world. We're just using it the wrong way, you know, with nuclear weapons and cyber warfare and all the junk that these people call gangsters, otherwise known as world leaders, are doing to disrupt this world, sleepwalking collectively to extinction. That can happen through technology, but the reverse can also happen. We'll be back with more after this. At Amazon, there's a way up for anyone because there's something for everyone. Like Jessica, who completed free technical training programs and is getting her bachelor's with Amazon's prepaid tuition. Even if you have no knowledge or no experience in IT, Amazon has the tools and the resources to teach you. I've been promoted three times and it's been a significant boost in pay for me. Free technical training programs at Amazon move full-time and part-time employees into higher paying jobs. Visit aboutamazon.com for more info. I want to ask you about your views on world leaders in just a moment, but this carrying this a little further on the technology side, what about social media? and the role that it plays. How, how, how do you view that? Because you're on Twitter, right? You do tweet, you're on Instagram. Are you on TikTok? Yes, I you do. Are. I do one video a day, which then gets on all these sites. Okay. But that one video is only about well-being and the future of our consciousness if we don't sleepwalk to extinction. That's what I do. You know, I, I'm so concerned. You know, there's a, I don't know if you live in New York or where do you live, by the way? I, I'm in the Washington, D.C. area. Okay, so in Union Square, New York, yes. there's a big sign about climate change and people don't even look at it. But, you know, it's a countdown, six years and 180 days as of this morning to climate disasters, refugees, pandemics, war, violence. And all we do is watch today's stock market. So let me get back to your comments about world leaders, because this did get a lot of attention. You gave an interview, I think, earlier this year in which you said you think every current leader nationally, almost every current leader globally, without exception, is a gangster. They're interested in power, power mongering, cronyism, influence peddling, corruption, bureaucracy and amplifying their personal wealth. 
Do you really believe that about every single world leader with no exceptions? It's the nature of politics, unfortunately. And today it's the nature of social media, because if you want to win the election, you have to satisfy a certain demographic and you have to pander to their needs. And if you read The Republic by Plato, and this is again, very controversial, but I have to say what I feel is the truth. Uh, Plato was not a uh, uh, not a uh, fan or proponent of democracy. He said democracy assumes that everybody is equally capable of ruling. You wouldn't say that of music. Would you say every human being is equally capable of being a great musician or a great writer or a great physicist. But we say that of leaders. And so, you know, Plato said democracy is the rule of the mob and we're seeing it today. Okay. Mm. He also decried aristocracy as leading to tyranny. So his uh, thesis 2,500 years ago, he said, we need a republic that trains people to become philosophers, statesmen, and only then, if they qualify, are they worthy to stand for election. That was the original idea of the Republic. So yeah, there are exceptions. I mean, even today, there have are exceptions. We've seen Nelson Mandela, we've seen, in my opinion, Obama, we've seen, in my opinion, you know, Mahatma Gandhi, and some great statesmen, philosophers, during the the uh, when the British were being overthrown from India and India and Pakistan when they were coming together as a movement, all those leaders, by the way, including Jinnah and Nehru and Vallabhai Patel and Radha Krishnan, they were actually statesmen philosophers. Didn't last long. Do you follow politics in the U.S. now closely? Do you participate? Do you vote? Of course I would. Yeah. Um, uh, that's a responsibility I think is very important. I don't watch news other than, you know, my wife watches you and I happen except to be for the news hour. We'll take that. Yeah, except <laughs> for that. I, I don't watch news. It's totally disgusting to me. Why is that? Why, why don't you watch news? Because I think this speaks to a larger concern, especially around general stress and anxiety in our culture right now. Yeah, I, because all news has become melodrama and it doesn't matter you're left wing or right wing or whatever. It's now the sale of drama and you know who your constituency is. So unless you're selling melodrama, which can be sponsored by people who believe in your kind of melodrama, it's not even news, it's opinion. And, you know, I don't want to hear other people's opinions. I have my own. We're at a real moment of very deep divides politically, socially, culturally in this country. And we have this crucial election coming up in another year. I know you follow politics. Do you believe that one party or the better or the other is better for the well-being of our nation? I'm a natural liberal, so I would be naturally identified with the, uh, the Democratic Party. And I've always voted Democratic. But, you know, I'm, I'm looking for a real leader there too. You know, one of my friends that I've been trying to convince, I'm saying this publicly now, um, might as well, is Tim Shriver, you know, who's uh, indirectly related to the, 
to the Kennedys. Yes. He, I've known him for 35 years and, you know, I've been constantly badgering him for, to run for president. You've been encouraging it, really. What's his, what's his, uh, his reticence? I think he realizes that once he gets into the fray, then it's the same for everyone, you know. But my hope is that one of these days he'll run. Somebody like him should be running. Somebody who is a statesman, who understands philosophy, who understands the, you know, the, the, the rigor and discipline that is required to be an independent thinker. Uh, Tim, you better watch this program. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I want to ask you more broadly about your career because you've worn so many hats. Um, you built a career not just as a scientist, as an author, as a philosopher, as, a, as an entrepreneur. You've been the boss running lots of different projects. And I think on a, on a big picture level, you talk a lot about how you manage your stress, how you work towards your well-being. But I wonder if you could take it down to sort of a molecular level, which I think is where many people may find it helpful. When you find yourselves in those waking up on the days when there is a lot to get done, or there's a huge challenge ahead, or anxiety over a new project, what, do, what does Deepak Chopra do to manage stress in that, in that moment? I don't deviate from my daily schedule. So I have uh, sleep time, I have relationship time, I have the evening news hour time, <laughs> I have eating time, I have downtime, and I have recreational time, and then I have time for yoga and spirituality. And it doesn't, it's very structured, it doesn't change, and therefore there's no stress. I mean, I can honestly say I'm 76, I'm in really good health and I have no stress because I, at this moment, um, you know, it's also has to do with age. Uh, I'm not, I have no personal motivation or ambition, you know, which sounds strange my saying it, but I can say it honestly, I'm not motivated by anything personal. I'm only motivated by the bigger picture because I know that doesn't matter who you are, sooner or later, we are all going to be dead. And, you know, it doesn't matter. I mean, you know, I grew up and I saw the Kennedy assassination, the Martin Luther King assassination. My parents told me about the Second World War. My grandparents told me about the First World War, the Great Depression, on and on. So we are not the first generation to experience this crisis. And to me, it's insanity that we keep recycling this behavior. So, you know, my interest is not personal anymore. I would love to reach a critical mass of people, say a billion people, with the help of social media and people like you, for a more peaceful, just, sustainable, healthier and joyful world. I can say that in my sleep. That's what I want. More peaceful, sustainable, just, healthy and joyful. And that's what we need to do. That's what we need to do. Otherwise, it's a disgrace to our humanity, really, that we, we have allowed this situation to occur where our children are dying from suicide. Take me back to your day for a moment, because I think that individual practice of working towards that joyful, more just and peaceful world is important here. You mentioned breaking down your regimented day. What is relationship time? What is recreational time? What do you do in those moments? 
So relationship time is uh, these days sitting with my wife in the evening and spending an hour of quality time with her before we have our evening meal. Mm-hmm. Um, it also includes going for a walk with uh, with her or if I'm in California with my children. And that's relationship time. I wake up at six and do my, you know, spiritual practice first. Then I do a little writing. I don't work till, as I said, 11 o'clock. And I have the afternoon full with engagements, whatever they are on my schedule. I don't even look at my schedule the day before, just so you know. After five o'clock, I stop working. Okay, and I'm, I go into, again, meditation around eight o'clock, and I'm fast asleep by 10. That's my daily routine. Now, when I'm traveling, which I'm going to start traveling in a few days, and in the next few days, I'm going to be in California, I'm going to be in Oregon, I'm going to be in England, I'm going to be in India, and then I'm also going to be in Mallorca, Spain. I know that roughly, I'm not thinking about it, because when I'm there, I'll be at the disposal of those people that I've committed to for my lectures, panel discussions, meetings, and so on. But I will still maintain my routine, going to sleep at the time I sleep, waking up at the time I wake up. And uh, I will continue with my spiritual practice. And recreational time is what we call fun time? Recreational time is... Uh, with the family, grandkids, and everyone, yeah. uh, periodically go to a place, an island in Greece or Bali or Tokyo or something like that. Does it that. have to be an island? Can it just be, it just be personal time at home? Just, do you I ever just, just, do you I'm ever just, just binge watch Netflix is my I, question, I guess. I don't watch Netflix, no. <laughs> I, I don't watch movies or Netflix or any of that. Never. Never. I would rather read a book or yes, um, I, I'll make an exception. Uh, you know, I was uh, I was on a plane from Emirates to New York recently and uh, I did watch a documentary on climate change and it was scary. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you you've spoken a bit about this stage of life. Um, you are you are 76. And you did recently negotiate an exit of sorts, right? Selling the company that you built to a New York City-based company called The Healing Company. I think for anyone who has spent so much time and so many of their resources building something from scratch, that could be understandably difficult. Did you find it difficult? No, I came to the stage, you know, we have actually sold the company to two different companies. One was a coaching company. We had 5,000 coaches, sold it to a company that has 150,000 coaches, and they're all going to be now trained as Chopra coaches as well, and there's certified coaches, etc. And then the remaining part of the company I sold to the healing company. And that, the reason I did this is I enjoy creating content, you know, and that is something I'll do for the rest of my life. But the the day-to-day aspects of business have never interested me. And, you know, whatever evolved, evolved. I mean, it wasn't like I set out to create these companies. It just happened. And so now I'm very relieved. And I feel I've given the responsibility to people who are authentic, have integrity, and will 
keep the brand alive with its own authenticity and its higher calling. But I'm done with business engagement on a day-to-day basis. I can lend my name to worthy causes, and I'm focusing a lot more on the nonprofit, which is not only mental well-being, but also leadership training for younger people. We have a program for African-American youth on the future of leadership and the future of uh, leadership as it pertains to, you know, a multi-ethnic, multi a cultural society, which I hope we'll experience in the future. And there are uh, groups like, uh, in you know, there are disadvantaged groups, ethnic groups, not only in America, which is very apparent to us, African-American and other minorities. But if you go to Europe, it's the same thing. The, the African-Swedish community is very compromised. And so are communities in Europe, and they are always, uh, you know, they're always being discriminated against. They're marginalized economically and in terms of social justice. So I took upon myself this um, this endeavor to teach something called the soul of leadership, which I used to teach at Kellogg and Harvard, and then I realized it was too, too, uh, too eclectic and all just a class with 60 people. I'd rather talk to the African-American communities in uh, Queens. And we have a program right now in New York called Urban Yogis. And these guys, originally they were gang leaders and now they're actually leaders in the community. In one precinct in Queens, the crime rate has gone down by 99%. And my African-American urban heroes who used to be gang leaders are now actually real leaders. They've created their own hip hop brand. They teach, they teach yoga, they teach breathing, they teach meditation. Even the police come to them for training. So that's where I want to focus my life now. In, in selling your company, that's a major chapter that's closed. Yes. That's closing in your life. And I wonder how you think about this idea of knowing knowing when is the right time to end this chapter, which I think is something a lot of people struggle with. How do you know? You know, I meet meet a lot of young entrepreneurs and uh, they come to me for advice. They're starting a company. And even before they start telling me what their idea is, they're telling me about their exit plan. You know, it's like uh, dividing the loot before there's a train to rob. And this one exit after another and there is no joy absolutely no joy and then we have our final exit we call it death so do you want to go to death thinking i made all these exits or do you want to have your final exit a little more elegant and you know, i think for me that was my question my final exit should be one of joy and fulfillment and being able to stay very comfortably, been there and done that. Speaking of that final exit, I mean, this is something you've spoken about very openly, that you are living in your the final chapters of your life. A lot of people, that concept scares them. It's, it's a very frightening idea to move into that stage of life. Does any part of it frighten you? No. No, I mean, it's, it's, there's, you know, trillions of people have come and gone before you and me. Why would you want to be the only exception, uh, you know? So death is what makes life possible. 
if you really understand awareness and consciousness, and this I don't want to get into religious territory, but you know, everything has a purpose. And once that purpose is fulfilled, it's over. You know, your body, the cells in your body are programmed to die. And if they don't die, we call them cancer cells. A cancer cell is a cell that has forgotten its memory of death. So apoptosis or programmed cellular death makes life possible. Life is not the opposite of death. Birth is the opposite of death and death is the opposite of life. And life is the continuum of birth and death. But of course, that raises a biggest question. What is it that dies? You know, what is it that dies? You know, does, does awareness die? And if, if awareness is not in time, then obviously it doesn't die. Just like information doesn't die, energy doesn't die, matter doesn't die, everything recycles and evolves. Why would your consciousness be the only exception? But that's a whole nother philosophical topic. You know, and, and all the work I do and all the people I talk to, and I'm sure you see this as well, there's this sort of collective sense right now that after everything we have lived through, especially in the past few years, people are in need of a little hope. They're in need of a reason to know that things will be and can be better. And I think one thing I'd like to leave everyone with is just some guidance from you on, on how and where people should look for that sense of hope. If they were to take or do one specific action to try to work towards that, what would that be? I would say, ask yourself every day, four questions. How can I cultivate a joyful, energetic body? Number one. Number two, how can I cultivate a loving, compassionate heart? Number three, a clear, quiet mind. And number four, joy. And ask the question, don't worry about the answers. If you live those questions, life will move you to the answers. Can't think of a better way to end this conversation. Deepak Chopra, thank you so very much for thank joining you. me in conversation at the Crosscut Ideas Festival. This was an absolutely fascinating conversation. Thank you, Amna. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's it for today's episode. Thanks again to Deepak and Amna for the talk. And thanks also to everyone in the audience who asked questions. If you'd like to be one of those audience members for a future CrossCut event, go to crosscut.com slash events. This episode of CrossCut Talks was produced by Seth Halloran and engineered by Resty Bacall and Victoria Ralph. And the event was produced by Jake Newman and Anne O'Dowd. Madeline Happold managed our audience engagement. And you can subscribe to CrossCut Talks wherever you listen. And if you like the show, please review us. We want to know what you think. For the latest political, environmental, and cultural news from the Pacific Northwest, visit CrossCut.com. And if you would like to support the work we do at CrossCut, whether it's live events we host or the in-depth reporting we do every day, go to CrossCut.com membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to on-demand programming on Seattle's PBS station, KCTS 9. CrossCut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Paris Jackson. We'll be back soon with another conversation.